0: stay hungry, stay foolish. Innovators, changemakers, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, catalysts. One of these is not like the other. That is to say, each of these types of people can make a whole lot of change happen in the world. But within any group of innovators, changemakers, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, are those people called catalysts. Those of us who have a deep rooted need to create positive change. Among catalysts, there is an unmet need to be seen and valued for who we are and how we show up in the world. Catalysts feel a deep sense of drive towards a better future state. We can't help but see potential change and set it in motion. We're energized and we're driven by it. We welcome author of Move Fast, Break Shit, Burn Out: The Catalyst's Guide to Working Well, Shannon Lucas. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's an honor.
0: Shannon, I'd wager most of our audience are catalysts or soon to be catalysts. And you tell us that you felt this way since your school days, whether that be school, your school recycling programme as a young kid, or your innovation roles in Vodafone or elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I, I have been I identify once I figured out what it meant to be a catalyst, you can look back with hindsight 20 being twenty twenty, And it's like, oh, that explains why I've done all the things that I've done. There's one interesting point in the way that you frame that question, though, and the... We haven't done the research on this, uh, but part of the reason that we love working with catalysts is because we think they're sort of innately born that way or something happened early on in their lives that precipitated them being a catalyst. So when you say about people becoming catalysts, I think the shift for them might be recognizing that they've always been this way, but we're not sure that you can actually teach people to be catalysts because this is their sort of innate way of moving through the world. I also like that you call me a kid when I was building the innovation program at Vodafone. I'll take it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there's something interesting there i sent you i i did a review for your book on yeah, amazon thank you and i mentioned in there about this it gave me this sense of belonging and sense of making sense of myself but i what i thought was where a dot connected from, for me was that just like any spectrum a catalyst is on a spectrum and it's a neurodiversity i i found i, I was like thinking about it I was like going I wonder, is it some, some yet-to-be-diagnosed neurodiverse way of thinking, which is really valuable? And again, it brings to mind the necessity for diversity within teams.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I loved that you brought that up because actually when Tracy and I, every month we run a Am I a Catalyst webinar just to help people familiarize themselves. And we talk about that sort of normal distribution curve I am a hyper catalyst. I'm very far in the catalyst of sort of spearhead. And and Tracy, my co-CEO and co-author, she comes from a research background. And so she's a little bit more considered. She's still lightning years ahead of most of the general population in terms of connecting the dots. And it's great for me to have balance for someone who's like, mm, should we be doing that right now? Maybe we want to take a pause before we move into action the other interesting thing that you brought up is the sort of the the neuro component or the neurodiversity component here we see overlaps with other populations uh, again we still have more research to do so this is all anecdotal but with a lot of different data points anecdotally ADHD as an example has seems to have a very high preponderance in this community and you can imagine that because <clears throat> there's a there's that hyper part the like dot connecting part the thinking differently than than other people highly sensitive people, high potential people. There's a lot of labels that sort of overlap in this Venn diagram about what it means to be a catalyst. I think the important point for you know organizations is we can identify these people and so we can help them identify and then figure out what they need to do to support them. We have that data. And
0: that made me think of we had a great show a few probably a couple of years ago now with a guy called Daniel Z Lieberman and the book was entirely on dopamine and the term is dopaminergic when somebody has more dopamine levels. And I always think of catalysts or entrepreneurs or changemakers or entrepreneurs, the startup founders, as this drive within them to create more and nothing's ever enough, and they can't rest on their laurels. And that can be a curse as well. But he talks about this as being this drive because he calls it the molecule of more to want to actually go and create more. So I thought about that being thrown into the spectrum recipe bowl which is why we're like this.
1: Super interesting. And, um, you know, in the book, we talk about kind of like the energetic curve of a catalyst as we go through our process. And we actually describe that first part where we're doing all of the sensing and the dot connecting and having conversations like this as being almost a manic stage. And like a sense of euphoria, I mean, just like physically palpable, you can feel that dopamine response. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Once we get into orchestration, we lose a bit of that dopamine response. And so it's not as fun for us anymore, for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we'll come back for that because I love the way you build the book as well. But earlier on in the book, you say, while others in my team seem to be able to leave work at the office, I couldn't create any distance at all. And this is before work from home, (laughs) mandatory work from home failure on the job also feels personal criticism of our work feels like criticism of us and if all my all ideas are bad then i must be bad too this is one of the curses of being a catalyst
1: it is a hundred percent i think it connects to actually the point that we were just talking about because most catalysts describe that need to sort of you know starting with the searching as they're even starting to see through the 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 signal through the noise This like physical need to pursue that to the end to make it a reality. And so you can feel in that language the physical connection to what it is that we're putting out there in the world. Interestingly, though, we don't often have come in with our own agenda. I mean, we might be purpose driven in that we want the world to generally be a better place, more sustainable, more more impact on all of that. But we often don't go into situations a priori saying, this is what we need to do. We use our amazing sensing skills to figure out what needs to happen. And so it's interesting because we'll be bringing this new idea that we've, you know, we've created through this deep synth- synthesis. And, but then people start to attack the idea and we're like, wait, like this isn't even my thing, or they might start to attack me. And it's like, well, I only care about this because I think it's the best thing for the company, the organization, the system. And so that's where it starts to feel deeply personal too. It's like you have this physical connection. You see that it needs to happen and the lack of understanding can be really challenging.
0: Yeah. And I love that. I I often use the term gainsayer versus naysayer. Naysayer being somebody who... We'll just say no to every you know those type of people yeah, in the innovation programs, <laughs> yeah. But but a, a catalyst is often a gainsayer. They're calling stuff out because it's for the better good of the organization, and it's uncomfortable things. You know, we we talk a lot about psychological safety, but catalysts often overlook that, and they just go look for for the greater good of this organization or the change program or whatever it may be. Here's the uncomfortable news, and then we suffer what's called the mum effect, shooting the messenger. Yeah, and I loved. I loved what you talked about here, Shannon, I'm going to quote you here because this line really stuck out for me. While catalysts can thrive in times of chaos, often the same people who brought us in start backing away from us or withdrawing support, it can feel like gaslighting or some weird reality shift is happening beneath our feet. As the change gets more imminent, they might even attack the output or us directly, while we're left wondering what happened, the sense of betrayal and self doubt you feel In those moments isn't imagined it's a function of the life as a catalyst
1: when as a catalyst you've had those experiences it's hard to imagine that that's a pattern of a population that have experienced that because it feels so personal at the time um and so there's this deep healing i think for catalysts getting to recognize that it's not just them um there's a lot that we can do To at least minimize this happening, I don't know that we can altogether, you know, avoid it, make, you know, avoid making it happen because we don't have control over the larger system. We don't have control over those people. If we bring more empathy into the journey with us and, you know, we can talk about it later, but understand other people's relationship to change. And this is what we spend a lot of time talking about in the book is like, how do you bring those people along to minimize that pivot at the end where all of your supporters take two steps back and you're left, left holding the bag. (laughs) Um, But it is, it's really, it's, it's, we actually use the word trauma. We talk about trauma in the book and I think we need just generally to be talking more about trauma in the workplace, but it's like you get invited in to do something you go on this really difficult hero's journey to bring this thing back that you were asked to bring back. And then, as you said in the quote, it's like everyone just takes two steps back and you're left there going, I don't understand what happened. And I think, you know, for me, having lived this experience time and time again, the self-compassion piece is really important here. It's like, because personally, and I share this in the book, I felt like it was my failure. Like I did everything wrong. And it's like, well, no, people a priori couldn't have known what their relationship to change was they thought that they were ready for change catalysts can often dream bigger and move faster which actually then accelerates people's sort of you know pulling back and going through the almost five stages of grief on the change curve right um and so it wasn't just you and it wasn't just them and that's where it's like let's take the blame out of the out of the situation and say, what could I have done better to mitigate this, but also recognize that other people could have stepped in and supported you. And let's give them the tools to support catalyst as well.
0: Uh, and that's so so important. It's so so important. It, it really was one of the inspirations for me starting the show was that I found there was a cohort of people like me, like you. And oftentimes, it can be mentally challenging, it can be you can feel lonely, ostracized, the organization makes you feel like your problem gaslight you essentially. And I was talking to one of the guys after I left an organization, I worked in for a long time. And the other thing to say, I made loads of change, I did loads of positive things, but I overlooked those towards the kind of going, but I didn't have the transformation from a caterpillar into a butterfly I didn't have that massive transformation. And I I said to him, I remember saying to him, I feel like I failed. And he goes, and it was really important for me actually this he said, you didn't fail, the organisation fails you. And it sent me on this mission that you're also on to try and find out how I could have done it better, what frameworks and mental models are out there that I could have drawn upon to make the change better. And this is essentially what you do in this book. But I wanted to bring it to something just have to say, though,
1: you just gave me Sorry. goosebumps. Like when someone can help you reframe it like that and give you the distance, like that's healing because we beat ourselves up so much for, because we saw the big vision and we do, we lose sight every, we get to the foothill, but we see the next mountain. And so we forget that we had this massive climb and all the things that we've accomplished and not laying all the blame at the catalyst's you know, feet for it, not achieving that big vision that you probably never could have done anyway super healing,
0: there's so many lines in, in your book that helps you, you describe the the hero's journey, which is so common. And one of those lines that might resonate with our listeners, as you say, we have impossible standards for ourselves, and we hold high standards for those around us, often without that empathy you talked about, or even awareness of the way that in, that that impacts others, catalysts tend to say things like, if I go into a project, I want to make it a success, I see the moving parts to make it happen. Why can't they make it happen? Don't they want to improve? And you get very frustrated and you lack that empathy. That's so important.
1: This is really important. And this is one of the places where going back, I do still feel badly like I'm working on my self compassion, I did the best I actually worked with a coach who was like, had to remind me of all of the things that I did to mitigate some of this impact on my teams. I'm a perfectionist, and I see the big vision and you know, being patient, it's like being able actually to walk the talk as a catalyst leader is really interesting in terms of creating psychological safety, because we always see how things can be done better, but holding space and grace for people learning as they go through the process. And also they're probably not seeing the vision as clearly as you are. Um, So I think it's just holding the grace that they're not where you are. And thinking about how you can help them come along on that journey. Now, it's tough if you're the individual contributor catalyst because you'll see how things can be done better, but people might not listen to you. And so, you know, it does matter in some ways where you are are in the organization because you can just sort of be like that annoying fly that's bothering everybody about, hey, guys, can't we do this better? Hey, guys, can't we do this better? So this is where like the self-awareness um, and some of the individual catalyst skill building can help you be more effective um, and bring others on that journey without yeah, damaging or frustrating the relationship too much.
0: Like that that part is so, so important. I found in some of the organizations I worked in, there was a few people who were like, lifelines where you'd you'd go and meet them. And it would almost be like this, uh, the way I used to think about it was, I was coming up for air from the swamp, and I'd meet them and they'd be just breath of fresh air for me. And then I'd go back down to ba- battle the alligators again. And I think that that part is so so key. And, and you do a great job in the book of, of bringing that forward. And I wanted to just pull a few lines to to help our audience figure out is it them. So you I love the term you're talking about, which is subconscious data connection. And I've seen this so many times where you just sense things are happening way before they happen, and and oftentimes, way too soon. So you, you start to act like chicken little, the sky's falling down, but it's not falling down for another few years, but you act as if it is, and then they think you're a bit nuts. And you some of the terms that catalysts have told you some of the quotes that I pulled here are I'm comfortable operating in the fog with 40 to 70% of the information backed by strong intuition. I powerfully lead from the front. I trust my intuition and catalysts process data at a lightning speed. We absorb information quickly and easily from conversations, experience, research, emotional intelligence, subconscious observations and overt data. And this is a powerful trait of catalysts.
1: And happily, I think organizations are finally starting to understand the need for this human cognition. And it's an art rather than a science, right? That AI won't probably be able to do for for a while, Um, which is that synthesis, because it also takes into account a lot of human subtleties that are going on as we're doing that that synthesizing. Um, So my hope is, is, you know, as bad as last year was, I think people are finally really internalizing that we live in a VUCA world. You know, the volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity, and the ambiguity. And how do you navigate out of it? And this synthesizing, this dot connecting, this intuition is a really powerful antidote to that. It's interesting because when we talk about like the shorthand version of what it is to be a catalyst, the sixth thing that we put on the list is actually not an attribute of the catalyst per se, but the perception from other people about what a catalyst is. And other people will describe us as being comfortable with risk and navigating ambiguity. Now we go back to having a spectrum in the catalyst worlds. That is, you know, that is true. There's a spectrum of people there, but importantly for us, it's like, it doesn't feel risky. It doesn't feel ambiguous. Like I feel in my body, I can see so clearly, if I, even if I can't make you understand what's happening and how we need to respond. So I think it's important that companies will start to recognize this and hopefully lean into identifying these people and supporting them better and listening to them finally.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to lean into the idea of of the, the gaslighting or the feeling of loneliness that can come from being a catalyst, because oftentimes catalysts join an organization it doesn't work out, they leave, and then they go looking for another cause, they find another cause, same thing happens. And and this is why I think your book is so important to give us a, a mental model and also tools to, to overcome that and to understand what's going on. But it also often is brought into the family life, then into your personal life where you may be going after some big cause. And you may feel like you're a failure. And then on top of that, where you sense an organisation may close, for example, an innovation lab, which is happening all over the world at the moment, where they're closing down the very lifeline for the future of the company. And and catalysts feel this, and then they can bring it home. And maybe their partner who doesn't understand them as catalysts, doesn't understand that that's actually a very valuable trait, can add to the confusion. And unmeaningly, of course, like they don't mean this, of course, it's it's not meant in a, a negative way, but they might, their partner might wonder, Maybe he or she's the problem and that does not help and it adds to the confusion.
1: Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to start with the my relationship with labels. My son has ADHD and has a lot of sort of, I mean, he's super smart, super high IQ, but has a lot of those sort of neurodiversity things that we were talking about And when we finally got the label for him, I used to be super anti-label, right? Like, don't put people in a box. There's so much more than the label. But the labels do serve a purpose, which is to provide understanding, because then I could lean in and say, oh, he's not willfully not finding the toilet paper in the closet. He literally, like, has to touch the things to find the toilet paper in the closet. And I could understand in, in with context, right? So I think and I hope that having the term catalyst, to your point, doesn't just help the people... In our organizations or work life, but helps the people in our home life understand how we operate. Conversely, for the catalyst, it also helps us understand and maybe get rid of some of the frustration that most of the world doesn't operate that you do. And that's where a lot of the friction comes like, why are, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you moving as fast as I am, right? So there's the label part. And then we talked earlier about the perfection, you know, that we can bring into the team and the damage that that can do. But like, I struggle with this in my personal life. And to your point, no catalyst really can bifurcate. They only are catalysts at work. This is why it's an innate thing, right? They're, they bring that catalyst thing at home. So it's like constant self-improvement, constant family improvement, constant at-home system improvement. And so hopefully the partner's understanding that this is like who they are and how they function and can gain some skills and some empathy in both directions. And then there's an, another interesting piece that's connected to what you just said, which is we actually talk about financial freedom in the book and in the classes and with our catalysts. Because to your point, it is going to probably always be a cyclical journey for catalysts. By definition, we get, even if we're wildly successful, we get bored once we've like crossed that threshold. So we're going to go on and look for the next thing. And so I think the financial pressure is part of what makes the conflict at home be tough, right? It's like, can't you just hold down a steady job? <laughs> it's like, well, if you can give yourself the cushion, then Catalyst can go look for better places. It's, it's not reactionary when they're going to look. It's not like out of desperation that they're going to look for their next thing. And so they can fi- start to fi- change the cycle, start to find things that will help them stay there longer, be more successful and take the pressure off at home.
0: So important. And I, I write uh, loosely connected article based on each show, and what you i I, ha, I have like maybe two hundred three hundred articles in draft at any stage, and then a show is like do, do you remember that coin drop game where the coins get pushed over the ledge? Do you know that game where you drop in a coin no, i don't know I, I, and that that idea is how a show might push me to go actually now i 'm going to finish that one, and one of them is this idea of the thermostat for change that a thermostat is re- really a feedback monitor, and that oftentimes where the thermostat for for a catalyst or anybody who's on a different spectrum is different for stuff like fear and risk and that a catalyst risk thermostat is actually turned up to a level where you don't really feel the heat essentially while other people will be massively feeling the heat and i often have empathy when it comes to catalysts at home for example like a partner Maybe just, I just want a nest for my children. I just want to have stability. And that may be based on some experiences they've had in their lives. So therefore, we need huge empathy to go, okay, I need to be mindful of what's going on inside their head and actually be able to articulate the way I see the world in a way that they will understand it.
1: A hundred percent. And we have so many catalysts once they self-identify or come through the classes who are like, can you do a class for me and my partner? <laughs> because we, We're so far apart on some things. And can you help us navigate it? I think that's right. And it's an interesting point about empathy. Empathy is a superpower of catalysts, sort of by default, when we're doing the sensing mode of the change that needs to happen in the world. Where so many of our problems stem from is that we sort of leave empathy at the door outside when we either walk into the building at work, metaphorically now, or we walk into the home, which is really interesting because like, it is such a superpower for us, but then we feel like, oh, we can just be ourselves, whatever that means in those contexts. And the big shift for catalysts leading their best, most intentional lives is what you just talked about. Which is bringing empathy for self, the understanding of how they innately show up in the world, and then the empathy for what that looks like for the other people that they you know that they have in their lives because we're we
0: are challenging. like
1: <laughs> we can be arrogant, we can be self-assured, we can move too fast. And so just having empathy as we go through those journeys with people is game changing
0: and and th- it's not new either. Like one of the greatest moments I had on this show over the six years I'm doing it was, You know, Charles Handy, he's like an amazing author. He's in his 80s, he's nearly 90 now. I I spent an evening with him in his home in London just before the lockdown, actually, just before COVID hit the world. And he has a book called The Second Curve. And he talks about jumping from curve to curve. And, And what I found remarkable was in the very start of the book, he said, his whole introduction was dedicated to his wife, may she rest in peace. And what he talked about was, I owe a lot to my empathetic wife because she tolerated my jumping around and it was through the jumping around that I eventually stumbled upon success. And I thought that line yeah. for me, I didn't really call it out, but was so important that a catalyst will eventually find the success. But it's that mix of the instability that it causes, the the pressure on finances the emotional stability of the catalyst themselves, and most importantly, the tool set to understand how to make the change happen is so unbelievably important.
1: It's really difficult. And it's such a great reframing. Again, when catalysts figure that out, like we had for our book launch, we had this guy who explained what it meant to him to identify as a catalyst, because he was like, and he's, he's, you know, early on in his career, but he said, people asked me five years ago, like where I wanted to be. He said, I didn't have an answer and it kind of made me feel bad. And he's like, now I know the answer. And the answer is I'm going to be solving the next wicked problem. And so he's clear on like how he operates in the world. And if you can articulate that to the people in your life, it at least creates some spaciousness because they understand that there, you know, there might be an intentionality. It doesn't look like other people's, you know, here to here to here to CTO or CEO, But it also isn't completely chaos and disorganized. It's like I'm developing my understanding of different things as I go down. I'm learning driven. I'm growth mindset driven. And to your point, with enough patience and perseverance, I will get there. I think the one caveat for that that we see is it's the self-awareness and the tool building that you mentioned that becomes the, are you going to be able to be successful as a catalyst or not? Because if we don't have those things, we can be really disruptive and it can be a really hard road, which is why we want people to know, because it doesn't have to be a hard road once you know.
0: One of the one of the end results can be burnout because of due to frustration mainly. And you say it's a huge problem for catalysts and you highlight when we write off our unique process as automatic or as something that everyone can do we can expect too much from people around us as well, back to that empathy. Why can't they move faster? Why can't they see the connections or just make the change already? And that's because they literally can't see the change. And I think that understanding of their world or how they see the world is equally essential.
1: It's so important. And like, even though I knew the research, I kept making the same mistakes because it's so innate. And so when you're trying to move fast, it's really easy to forget the empathy. I mean, it's not like I forgot it completely, but the depth of empathy that you need, the bigger the change, the more empathy you need. And so it's interesting because the name of the book, people are like, well, are you advocating for moving fast, breaking shit and burning out? And we're like, no, that's what happens when you don't bring intentionality and self-awareness to the process. And you actually move faster. It's such a cliche, but you actually move faster by slowing down enough in those first steps to develop the empathy and awareness. Do people understand the vision? Are they on board? Because the number one reason for failure for catalysts is that they weren't clear enough on the vision and they jumped off the starting block and moved into action really quickly before making sure that everyone was on board and understood what their role was and then if we do that, then when we move too fast, I mean, when we, we're breaking shit, we're breaking the wrong shit. So we're not saying you're never going to break shit, but if you don't have the team on board and people, in, you know, in alignment with your vision, you're probably going to break the wrong shit. And then going back to your question, all of that just amplifies the resistance. And so then we end up burning out. And so it's like, no, let's slow down a little bit. Let's be really mindful about what we're breaking when so that we can at least minimize and mitigate some of the burnout.
0: This happened to you in a role where you went into a new organization and you were basically setting up a new change program and those people around you were nodding empty empty, emptily. Sorry, I'll say that again. And this happened to you in an organization you worked in where you initiated a change program, because you had people around you, and they were nodding as if they understand the vision, and their eyes were glazed over. But you were clever enough to realize that and when you dug into it a little bit more, you found actually, they didn't get the vision, this is really important.
1: It's so funny because catalysts like everywhere are probably nodding their heads being like, I've been in that (laughs) meeting, right? I've been in that meeting where I was presenting a thing and there's all the heads nodding. And then you walk out to go left and start executing and they walk out and go right and have a conversation about what the hell just happened, right? And so it's really important to uh, what I did in that particular scenario, actually, is I shared the strategy and then I talked for another 20 minutes because... I know that people process at different speeds. I know that there can be fear about asking the leader for clarification after you've been talking about it for so long. No more questions. The head shaking happened. And then you have to go back and say to each individual, what are you going to do differently tomorrow? like have them actually apply the change, because that's where it starts to expose the disconnect potentially in the vision. Um, but it, it can be frustrating. I mean, you had made a note about like being in the meetings where people are taking like, you know, five to 10 minutes to recount every single thing that they did last week, and they're going to do. And it's like, <laughs> you talked about like you are physically and emotionally frustrated. <laughs> and it's that same sense. I was like, yes, that thing It was like, that is too slow. We need to move much faster. Like, let's get to the point and go, go do some action,
0: right? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting one that you saw that. So this is my notes that I sent to Shannon before our chat today. It was like, here's my notes from the from the book, which are loads, by the way, and, and I didn't even get near the amount of notes, I had to actually create a second note folder for the other notes, by the way. But this is the weekly meeting where everybody meets and they're like, going, oh, I did this and that and you're kind of going, none of this is meaningful. <laughs> Get to the real meat here and it drives <laughs> yeah. you absolutely crazy. But, I like but again, I
1: my eye out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like and, and you're going you're going, Okay, I have to have empathy here. Not everybody's the same. I need to be part of a team because you need the team. And this leads me to I'm just gonna jump ahead of my notes here, to the idea of diversity of a team because what you found with yeah. that team when you put that team together was you didn't have enough executors. And I often think about diversity again, because when people talk about diversity, they think gender and color, et cetera, background, but it's skill sets as well. So some people are just absolute executors. Some people are vision creators or dot connectors.
1: It's really interesting. So I had this massive spreadsheet that I had, you know, created with my HR business partner about all the types of diversity, like I was very intentional. I mean, like obsessively intentional about creating a diverse team, which is hard also when you're moving at speed because it's like you just want someone in the role, but you have to wait for the right next person to, to bring that. We we did, I, the, the word executor, so we definitely had executors on the team, but there was this personality profile uh, using the Belbin uh, tool. They're called completer finishers, I think. And yeah, those we didn't have one of in my sort of direct report leadership team. And it's, you know, it was such a blind spot. It didn't even occur to me um, that that was a, another sort of facet of diversity that we needed to think about. Since then, having done more research and working with organizations, when we create catalyst programs, we are cultivating for all of the different types of diversity. And there are we there are sort of archetypes that emerge from the literature about the different types of catalysts. So it's making sure you have that really multi-dimensional type of diversity on the team, and to your point, including people who can get it across the finish line.
0: <laughs> I wanted to share a little bit about burnout because... There's almost just as there's a jump to a new curve, there's also a pattern to burnout that can happen to catalysts and uh, catalysts. And you say that catalysts show up in the world as powerful, sometimes magical forces for change, even when we're a bit messy and uncoordinated in our efforts. The overall impression is one of energy and action. However, our highs are higher and our lows are lower, and we cycle through them more often leading to burnout. And I was chuckling to myself when I read that this process, if you say this process is similar to the intensity of childbirth, after it's over, and you're recovered, we seem to forget the challenges of the experience completely. I often think about that when with the movie Men in Black, and they have this little device that wipes people's memories. That ch- I used to say, childbirths like that—you kind of forget how fast it was, how difficult it was.
1: Such a good analogy. It was. <laughs> I read it to my husband last night. I was like, "This is such a good analogy." Yeah, but
0: but um, I, I I often think about that when a change maker might go through the process and then forget how difficult it was the first time, and they probably would decide not to do it again because they're like, going oh, I couldn't face that resistance." This happened to me where. I was asked to do a role where it was essentially what I had previously done. And there was two things going through my mind. One was that the world had moved on. So there was an understanding more of what was happening, and how important what I was going to what I was doing was. And the other was that I just felt I wasn't going to have any growth from doing that again. But I wanted to tie it back to something that I that I pulled out a line here, because this is also essential. I had what I call I had enough rope to succeed, I was given enough freedom in the first instance, because everybody didn't know what was happening. So I had freedom to fail some learn from those failures and quick iterations, etc. But you say not having permission to act on obvious visions, getting smacked for being outside your swim lane, losing your support, your people, suddenly and without warning, staying on too long, hoping things will get better. The energy for change that we bring into every space we occupy is not always appreciated on junior or contribute contributor levels we can present as threats to the organisation, or at least to established power. And that can quickly become unsafe, exhausting, and traumatic. And this I find is so unbelievably common throughout the catalyst world.
1: Yeah, I wanna I wanna come back to that. I would like to address the childbirth metaphor though, <laughs> because it's a, it's such an interesting point. <clears throat> and this is the thing, like in the research, that separates like if change agents is this big, large population, catalysts are a subset, because you would be insane to keep doing it over and over and over again. But this is the innate piece; we cannot help ourselves, right? And we have catalysts, literally, who have just experienced trauma, going. Do I, can I help it? Do I have to do it again? And we're like, you probably won't be able to help yourself. So let's set you up to not have it be so traumatic next time. We had a group coaching call last week, and actually, a couple of people on the call are at these pivot points and they're struggling with this. It's like, do I stay as a solo or entrepreneur? Because at least I have more freedom than the second part of your question. I have more control over my destiny but can I achieve the scale of change that I want playing potentially small like that? Or do I need to go back into a large organization? For me, the reframe is it's always an experiment. Like if you want to go into that next organization, here's the things that you can look for and we can talk about what those are, but here's the things that you can look for to at least have a better sense if you're going to have the support that you were asking about in the second part of the question, but also know like Hey, you're going into a 50 year old organization that isn't the most change friendly thing. You can try it for another 18 months and see what you learn and how far you can push the needle. And if you fail, it doesn't mean it's on you, right? And so, just again, creating a little bit more of the spaciousness for for catalyst to not as not as deeply internalize the trauma or the pushback. Going back to the the creating the safe space for the catalyst. I mean, the the number one thing when catalysts ask us is like, what's going to set me up to succeed is having a supporter, which you mentioned early. It's like having that person who's going to understand how you operate and giving you you enough rope, but also like have a cushion at the bottom. You don't want to like take the rope and jump and crash really hard with no one there to catch you either because as catalysts, we can do that. So I think it's about you know, being really honest with yourself and evaluating your environment. Like, do you have at least one supporter, if not more? Have you seen other change initiatives that have been successful and what in that organizational context made them made that successful? But also finding your catalyst like out in other organizations who understand you and can support you and, you know, help you troubleshoot in the moment if you're getting all of that resistance and pushback.
0: Yeah, I, there's so much in this. I mean, my mind's going connecting dots here consciously and subconsciously the whole time. <laughs> but uh you you know what it's like to write a book and I've just launched my book as you know and when I Congratulations. Thank you. Well, to you as well. And one of the things I found so meaningful and spoke to me was that you say it's often during the mania that it feels fine to skip some of our personal energy regeneration practices going to the gym, seeing friends meditating, because we're flying high, we don't even realise how much we're giving up as long as it feels like we're gaining energy from envisioning the change. And I did all of these things when I was writing my book over and it was it was pretty intense over six months, but I stopped meditating. I started at the start, by the way, I was meditating, I was going to the no, I wasn't going to the gym because of COVID. But I was training as part of my day, usually my day starts with meditation. And then I go for intensive hit session. And my my idea is that it's like plugging in my iPhone to charge it up my brain for the day. And it's like I create this massive surge of energy. And then I just go and apply it to something. And the earlier I do it in the day, the better because I've less distractions, my, my, desire to do the work is higher in the morning. So that's that's how I operate. But when I was writing the book, I stopped all these things. And you say, this is so common for a catalyst. But also, we when when it's gone, then we don't go and repair the I call it damage, but the temporary damage, like for example, haven't seen my friends in ages haven't called them haven't gone to the gym haven't trained haven't meditated and then you're kind of grappling to try and put those pieces back together again something that you recognize as a common thread
1: yeah it's so interesting because um as i was doing my dot connecting at the same time that tracy was doing her dot connecting i didn't have the words you know the word catalyst or anything but i was the one thing that i was noticing about the people who showed up most like me was that that burnout was really common. And that was obviously what Tracy found in the data. And it goes back to that dopamine hit because when we're in that manic stage at the beginning, you're like, just a few more hours. Just it's It, it has an obsessive quality to it, right? It's just like, this is what I need to be doing. And I get enough energy from that at the beginning of the process that you don't even realize the hit that you are actually taking by moving further and further away from your rejuvenation practices. And the problem is usually we don't fully realize it until we're at burnout. (laughs) It's like, shit, I did it again. And at that point, it's like you don't even often have the energy to get out of bed. Or I mean, it's just it's really hard to reclaim the practices. And so it becomes, you know, we coach people through doing these incremental steps to get back to it. One of the guys that we interviewed for the book, George, actually pointed out, which we hadn't thought about when we were like, is so spot on is we often don't just have one project going on at a time either. So if you map out those energy curves, you know, overlapping, any one of them could be pulling you into burnout at any one time. And so this is really why we wrote the book It's like, for me, the two takeaways are self-compassion is a catalyst because it's really freaking hard. And stemming from that self-compassion then is investing in the rejuvenation processes so that you don't have to just keep hitting that that low. The highs are high, and that's a great thing about being a catalyst. I'll say, you know, I'm still Tracy and I are still not perfect at it. We wrote a book last year while we were in our first full year of of building a business. But what we do is we just get a little bit more intentional. It's just the little tweaks, right? Like when you we built into our operating structure for the business, checking in on each other on energy level and burnout. So every week we are talking about it. And if we're getting to a point where it's like one person needs to take on more of the load, or, you know, Tracy one day was just like, before you burn out and have to binge watch for the weekend and miss your family and all of that, just take a half half a day and go binge watch for that half a day so you can actually be awake and enjoy the binge and recharge before you totally burn out. And I was like, that's brilliant. (laughs) So yes, it's important. On
0: self-compassion, I was laughing because... But what George said about like you know you've multiple things going at the same time. As soon as I finished the book, I was like going going. Okay, I'm going to start the next book, and my wife was like, "No, no, you're not. No, 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 no." <laughs> and, and on top of that, what I did then was like going, "Okay, I started a newsletter for the show. I started a second show. So we have a second show coming online soon. It's uh, innovation in practice. So it's with entrepreneurs rather than authors." And I just started filling the space, you know, that was one thing. But the other I was really laughing at myself in the mirror here was self compassion. I never ever take time to to pat myself on the back for anything like and I, I had written it so much. So right, I had written a chapter for the book, and I took it out. And it was called smell the soap. And the story is, my younger son, ever since he was a kid able to wash his own hands, he had this practice where he would pour some soap in his hand, you know, the liquid soap, and he'd smell it. And I'd, I'd watch him, I kind of go, What are you doing? And he's like, Oh, I love the smell of the soap, because my wife buys nice smelling soap. And I, I took it as this mental model to go, uh, that's what I need to do that more in the day. And I need to have these kind of triggers to remind myself to go, Hey, you, you live unbelievable life of privilege. Should be grateful, take a moment. And even with that, I took the chapter out then. I was like, ah, oh, that doesn't fit. <laughs> I was laughing. I was like, there you go again.
1: Uh, yeah, you're literally manifesting that way of being in the world. I have a daily gratitude practice, which really helps. Um, and that actually came out of a mindfulness self compassion class that I did last spring. It was my second time doing it because the self compassion is so important. And I think, sort of like, The more trauma you've experienced as a catalyst, the more we need to cultivate this this self-compassion. The celebrating success is really important. And we talk about that in the book. And I am totally with you, which is why us having these, we have very lightweight weekly check-ins. And we actually, one of the other things that we track, like we do actually track activities, but we have like, what's your energy? What's your burnout? And what are we celebrating this week? Because it's really it's really easy to just blow through all of the things. And I use this metaphor before, but when you're starting out, you see the first peak and you're like, oh, that's huge. I'll never get there. And then you blow past that one for both catalysts. That's how we operate. And you see the next like 10,000 foot peak. And you're so that first like 5,000 foot peak, you don't even give yourself credit for because you see the next big thing that you have to do. And so I have multiple stories. Like I, I share one in the book where it was like, you know, at the end of the year, I had my team because I know now that I need to do this. I need to build it into every, every team operating structure that I'm in, which is celebrating success and also celebrating failure. And we had like stickies covering like the whole wall of things that we had done that year. And then we stepped step, we step back and we looked at it and we're like, we forgot the first six months. Like there was so much groundwork we had to lay in the first six months to achieve everything, but like we didn't give ourselves credit. And then the wall was totally covered. So, it is really hard as catalyst, and we need to, you know, we need to give ourselves credit for all of the work that we've done, especially because we're usually fighting, slaying dragons as we're making that impact.
0: Yeah, I when I saw that, I thought about I read my son's got me the Greek myths as a as a Christmas present. So brilliant, by the way, Stephen Troy. Or Stephen uh, Fry writes the writes the Greek myths in a kind of a modern accessible way, and I read them, you know, a couple of pages each night. But one of the monsters is the Hydra, and it's this thing where you chop off one head and another two pop out. And I was like, "Oh, that's what that's what we're doing." Like we're just kind of okay. That's done. I'll do another two things with that energy I have left over. But you don't have it left over. That's the point. But I, I wanted to jump to something you said there was really important, and again very common. And it spoke to me is that that you, you talked about those first six months that and, and let's overlay, let's put that in a Venn diagram of what I was saying about the weekly catch up meeting where people are describing everything they do. For me, that seems like a waste of time. And I'm like, going, okay, well, nobody wants to know about those little things. But to, to them, they might be a huge thing. And you talk about this process that I love called breadcrumbing.
1: Breadcrumbing is super important because First of all, as catalysts, you sort of described our career journey. Like you can kind of see who might be a catalyst on LinkedIn. It's not a total predictor, but you can see kind of the jumps in careers and from corporates to their own thing and back again. And, um, part of the reason that breadcrumbing is important is because we'll often stay for sort of the ignite, the ignition phase of a project. But once it gets into the orchestration, Once we start to see it taking off, once it starts to get sort of, you know, operationalized, we're out. We're like, that's not what I signed up for. And so I'm on to the next thing. And catalysts themselves, as we just talked about, can forget everything that they accomplished and all they had to overcome to accomplish it, even to get the wheels moving to take that thing on. And the rest of the organization will forgot. So many catalysts will come back to us and say, I knew I was successful when that person who was my biggest resistor who said, I couldn't even say those words at the beginning, came back to me 18 months later as if they were their (laughs) words. And you're like, yes, that's success. And it's so damn frustrating because they forgot where it came from. And so for Catalyst to this is a self-compassion thing. It's the celebration thing. It's the energy sustaining thing. It's breadcrumbing for ourselves, maybe a priori really, so that we can go then articulate, regardless of how the organization saw our success, we can articulate our success and the tools and skills that we use to get there, um, but it also does help with the organization. It's like, look, I didn't come up with this idea out of nowhere. I spoke with fifty, you know, fifty customers and twenty internal stakeholders, and you just document the, your process. And someone came back to us after this last class, and she has this massive spreadsheet. She's like, I'm not going to do this every quarter, but I want to show the organization like this didn't come from nowhere, and here's how I got there. So yeah, it helps a lot with the with the energy in both directions.
0: Earlier on, I mentioned about the whole idea of not being allowed the freedom to succeed, and one of the blockers to that for Catalyst, and again going back to the idea of the meeting or even the breadcrumbing, and you know, documentation essentially feels like an absolute waste. or You're like, going, "Why am I living in an Excel sheet when I should be in a PowerPoint, or I should be actually just creating out there in the world?" I often think about that. It's like, do you want me to be an Excel person or a Photoshop person, and I create in Photoshop. But measurement is really important. But it also can be an adapt- a dampener for catalyst organizations, put constraints on catalyst like smart goals. And especially when we're pursuing something amorphous, amorphous goal, something that's not even created yet. And you're like, and you're, you're trying to put something, you put a measurement of something that's repeatable, and has proven a revenue onto something that isn't even built yet, and give me an 18 month timeline, come on, that's going to kill me
1: yeah if one of the big management consulting companies could write a paper on it, then you wouldn't need us, right? And so <laughs> we're we're always at the edge of a hundred percent. It's something emergent, and I can't even tell you really what it is yet. to So for me, for you to expect for me to be able to set the same types of goals as a BU, that's a business unit that's been existing for 10 years, is totally ridiculous. The catch 22 is, so sometimes we get given those smart goals that really don't match how we operate. And sometimes they'll say, well, you tell us what you can do which sounds better, but isn't really better without any of the guardrails of... And so this is what we encourage Catalysts to do is to sit down and say, where are the guardrails? Like what's on the table? What's off the table? Can I cannibalize other revenue streams from the other the other parts of the organization? Does it have to be in your revenue? Or if it does, like what percentage has to be in your revenue? Because if you can at least get that kind of clarity around your sandbox then you can start to make your metrics about like how you're going to move it forward within that swim lane. So Vodafone, for an example, you know, we just started with the preposition that if we were able to talk to customers that weren't IT or procurement, who were C-suite SVP who actually owned lines of business in an ideation context that we would deepen the relationship and identify new, you know, opportunities. That was our only promise the first year. So how many workshops could you run and how many new executive relationships could you establish? And from there, you know, a couple years later, we got from all the way from that to how many tens of millions of dollars of actual in-year revenue plus hundreds of millions in pipeline. But it takes years to get there. So it is a specific challenge for catalysts. And this is why I'll just come back and say, sitting down with whoever your leader is and just figuring out at least what's inbounds and what what is out of bounds is a good starting place.
0: I was thinking there when you're saying about um, just valuing the skill of being a catalyst as in for yourself. I don't, I don't even mean the organization seeing it as a value, but I was I was thinking recently about the there's a an old story about this shipmaker, this this king who owns the ship, he buys this ship, it won't work. And he hires all the best people in the land, try and fix it, and he can't find anybody. And eventually, they bring him this old man, who's this uh, repairman. And he comes along and, and he has a bag in his hand. And he just takes out a hammer and he hits the ship and it starts working. And then they ask him for his bill. So he gives them the the invoice. And the invoice is like, I'm I'm riffing here, but it's like a hundred dollars. And the the king is furious. He's like, What? You only hit it with a hammer? And he goes, I want an itemized bill. And it goes, hammer, one euro, one dollar. Knowing where to hit, ninety-nine dollars. And actually, that's that's catalysts. That that's that's really valuable.
1: It's it's a great analogy, and it goes back to you know, what I see a lot in Catalyst is uh, a lot of T careers, right? So they'll, ha- they'll start off early in their career developing whatever domain expertise, and then they get interested in where can I apply it? Where can I apply it? Where can I apply it? And so there's this multidisciplinary, uh, multi-potentially is another sort of overlapping of the Venn diagram because... That's what we bring to the table is this depth of experience in a bunch of different industries or problems, et cetera, that we can then, to your point, leverage in, in the current environment. And it's really hard for organizations to say, yeah, connecting dots, that's worth $100. It's like, you know, and for us, it can be hard because we forget that that's not how other people operate. So Catalyst can actually have a hard time claiming their own value because, they're they're fighting an uphill battle, really, because that's not how organizations historically have talked about value creation for, for the you know with their employees. That's shifting now. Like there was just a really interesting article about how Google and Adobe have put empathy as an example on one of their top criteria for you know recruitment and new employees, and it's connected to the dot connecting and all of that stuff. So I like the shift is happening, um, but I hope the book and the conversations like this will help both the catalyst understand how to articulate to own their value, articulate it, and then organizations to understand it.
0: One last skill I wanted to talk about before I wanted to mention a a case study. He's a regular listener to the show, actually, and he, he'd mentioned you to me several times, but you're already on my radar. Is like kind of going, she's on the list when the book came out. But uh, one thing I noticed with catalysts is that we want to do so many things like the Hydra. I mentioned earlier on, we want to do loads of things, the next shiny new thing comes on, and you are like put it on the list. And then you kind of get what what I find is you don't get overloaded, but you can kind of hold them mentally in a mental list, but it's really important to put them down on a list. But it brings me to the idea of prioritization. Because when we don't get through our list, we can fall into this trap of guilt, shame or frustration that are these things that aren't happening yet. We haven't got to them yet, and that can feel bad on ourselves. But prioritisation is such an important skill in this age of VUCA that we're in. And I was trying to teach this to my kids. I I didn't send it to you in my notes, but every night we have this kind of constant thing where they want to do loads of things: play Lego, you know, play. I play mess fighting with them. So mess fighting. Uh, They want me to read a story to them. Um, No, want to have some warm milk. Want to watch a bit of telly. And I'm kind of going, guys you have 30 minutes. (laughs) And I let them I purposely let them fail, because I want them to prioritize and go what what do you want to do? Like what you don't have time to do all these things. So something's gonna drop off the list, because it's that pain of not having it is where they learn and they're eventually getting a slow process. But this is a huge problem for catalysts, which is prioritization of goals in line with the organizational priorities as well. I think that is a key point.
1: Yeah, when we ask the questions <clears throat> for people to self-identify about whether or not they're catalysts, we say, you know, do you overwhelm? Do you overwhelm your colleagues with lots of ideas? Do you overwhelm yourself with lots of ideas? So we talk about having a not right now list uh, because it can feel bad to be like, well, I have to pick from all these beautiful things and they're all too beautiful, so I'm going to keep doing them. And it's like, okay these beautiful babies are going over here on the not right now list so that I can prioritize sort of the things that I need to get done. This has been transformational for me. I mean, I started this at Vodafone where I would update my quarterly goals and I would put them on my desk so that every morning when I sat down, I knew what my priorities were. And importantly, all of the people around me knew. So if someone on my team comes to me and they say, well, I have this great thing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, as a leader, you're also holding the priorities for the team. You can say, well, where does this fit into our priorities? Do we need to have a discussion with the broader team about the priorities are changing or not? Um, And so it's a really practical conversation tool for us to actually move things forward. I love that you call out also being aligned with the organizational strategies as we're working with organizations to develop Catalyst programs, that's our starting point. Like, what's your strategy? What are you trying to get accomplished that you can't get accomplished now? Because Catalyst can go do all sorts of stuff, right? But we want to make sure that it's in alignment with what the strategies for the organization are. I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Gilkey. Have, have you read Charlie Gilkey's books start finishing well he has this other really great concept which is um thinking about you can only do five projects at a time and generally five a project takes five years so he's like you know look at year 80, subtract your age, divide by five. Like that's how many, how much time you have for the projects you want to do in your life. And for me, like writing a book, maybe one project and cleaning my closet might be another project. Like there's lots of projects that we have in our lives. And so just being honest with ourselves, because catalysts have magical thinking. We'll be like, I can get those 80 hours done in 40 hours. Totally. And then I'll have time for the family and all of that. So it's just being really honest. And our hope is that Catalysts can just live their most beautiful, most intentional lives, and let go of all of that pressure and the negative self-talk for not being able to do all of the things.
0: Such an important point, and and actually that that uh, magical thinking is a gift as well, where you can see the end result before anyone else can, and then you just like, well, I just need to fill in the dots to get there. Like it's it's a powerful vision tool, but also can catch you out. I mentioned this case study, and I'm going to tee it up for you here because. This guy's a regular listener to the show, big supporter of the work both of us do. And I wanted to, to give him a little nod because you mentioned him in the book. I'll tee you up with this quote The metric is beyond my ability to deliver as it stands, he told his boss. Trust that we'll get you the results you need, but it can't be a show and tell anymore. As we see in so many successful catalyst stories, he had a very supportive boss who listened, trusted and ultimately gave him the freedom and constraints that he needed to thrive. The department was still given a mandate and a metric, but they also had the freedom to figure out how to make it happen. This is the story of John Morley.
1: John Morley is one of my absolute favorite catalysts. It's part of the reason that he's in the book. And it's such a great example. I mean, John's sensing skills, as you well know, are you know some of the best in the world and his strong desire to <clears throat> his growth mindset is just off the charts and so that's what he was doing in that particular organization he said you know he recognized that he didn't have the resources that he need and needed to get those metrics done in a traditional way so he was like I'm going to experiment and I'm going to experiment actually by activating other parts of the organization to go on this journey with me And when you meet John, his enthusiasm is infectious. And so having a boss like that supporting a wicked catalyst like John ended up resulting in the creation of a massive new business spin out for the company. And so it's like, catalysts don't need a lot. That's the thing that I want to say to the leaders is like, we just need a little bit of support. We need a little bit of air cover. We need you to look out so we're not burning out. And we need you to help us translate what we're doing back into the organization, the worst thing that you can do is give us the smart goals that don't have any meaning for the things that we're trying to create in the world and sort of shut down our ability to go after the vision sort of before we even start. So massive shout out to John. He's continuing to do amazing things. And I hope more organizations learn how to support him like he got in that environment.
0: Tip of the cap to you, John and Shannon. Before we end, I typically end with a quote that I pull from the book. I'm I'm going to do that, but while I am, will you have a think about how you want to end today's show? But before I start that quote, where can people find out about m- more about what you do and what the organization does?
1: They can go to www.catalystconstellations.com. Uh, we also have a global community called the Galaxy. So if you want to meet you know, and spend time with other catalysts from all over the world, you can join the Galaxy as well.
0: My end quote is as follows. The great power of a catalyst is that we see the path to a brighter future. Of course, that brings resistance. Of course, that drains our energy. And of course, now more than ever, it has to be done. I love that quote because I thought it encapsulated the message in the book. And I highly recommend the book. It's a great read, very accessible and does a great job. So congratulations to you. How, how do you want to finish today's show?
1: Thank you. I will. I'll read a quote, too. <clears throat> and this is from both Tracy and myself. We are Tracy Lovejoy and Shannon Lucas. We represent catalysts and we hereby give you permission to vision the future, bring people together to create it and iterate until it is made a reality. We see you, Catalyst. When you see yourself too, you're going to change the world in the powerful way that only you can.
0: Author of Move Fast, Break Shit, Burnout, The Catalyst's Guide to Working Well, Shannon Lucas, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for the great conversation, Aiden. It was lovely.